Paul from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. He writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, last week, um, we began a two-week look at 2 Thessalonians. So this week is really kind of part two. Uh, And so what we saw, though, last week could easily be described as a bit of an obsession with end times theology, end times concern. And so what we pointed out last week, and this will start to bleed into this week. And so what we pointed out last week was Paul's command, his exhortation to the Thessalonians to not become alarmed, to not become quickly shaken, to not become anxious over reports that Christ had returned. Because these reports, as he told us in chapter 2, these were forged. These are forged letters coming from false teachers. And so this really is a constant theme. If you go and read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, this is a constant concern with this church. They're always worried that they've missed the return of Christ and that maybe even those that have died are not going to experience the return of Christ. And so Paul is dealing with this through these two letters. But in our text from last week and now this week, we see Paul, he, he addresses two separate reactions from the Thessalonians to these false letters, to these forged letters, to this obsession really with the return of Christ, to this obsession with the end times. And one reaction that we saw last week in chapter 2 is that some had become so anxious, some had become so concerned and so stressed and alarmed that they had forgotten what Paul and Timothy and Silvanus had taught them when they were with them in Thessalonica about the return of Christ, what that would actually look like. And so... What happens then is they get these forged letters, and these people that are anxious and they're alarmed, they, they start to believe that Jesus had not only returned, but he had forgotten them. He just left them. And so for them, they kind of lost all hope. Well, the second reaction, and what we'll dig into more today, is that since Christ had already, already returned, there was this belief from some that, you know what, I don't, I don't have to work anymore. Right? Christ has come back. I'm spiritually perfected. I'm good, so I don't have to do any work. 
And so it leads, as we see, as we just read, to idleness. Now, both reactions, while being vastly different, are also extremely wrong. Because, as Paul has already laid out in chapter 2, and he continues to do so today in this final chapter, their focus has become misplaced. And so what Paul does is he realigns priorities. And and last week he does so by encouraging us through this letter, encouraging the Thessalonians through this letter to stand firm in the truth that they had heard, to stand firm in the gospel that they had believed, but to also stand firm in the traditions that they had been taught. And so this week, his encouragement, though, it comes in the form of a commandment. Now, he gave them a command last week that was a little easier to swallow, but the one this week seems almost antithetical to the Christian message, especially of love and acceptance and and really just accepting one another. Because he tells the church flatly, stay away from those who are walking in idleness. And interestingly, what he does in in these verses that we have, we have 10 verses today, what he does in these verses is he actually helps us to understand it by framing it in the literary device of bookending. Now that's a familiar term, at least from my own preparation, and I know I've used it here because Luke does this a lot. He uses bookends to frame a passage. And so Paul does the same thing here. And so today, like we've done with Luke, we're just going to make our way across the shelf, right? We'll start with one bookend and we'll go to the other bookend. And we'll see, at least in this case, why as Christians we are not only not to be anxious or stressed or alarmed about the return of Christ, because, as we saw last week, it could make us ineffective if we become so alarmed and so stressed, we just we can't function. And so we become ineffective at the work that God has called us to. But he also tells us in this case, we are not to embrace idleness. We are not to walk in idleness as believers, even as we rightly pray for the return of Christ. And so just starting with the first book in, it's found in verse 6. So it's this very first long sentence that we have in our bulletins here. And he says this, Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So before we start to discuss why this command is being issued, let's let's take note here. If you've got a pen and you want to mark up your Bible or mark up your bulletin, do this. But we're going to take note of a few clarifying factors in this one verse that helpfully really informs the entire passage. So Paul, what he does, if you know this, notice this, and I know I do because obviously I spent all week looking at it, but he actually bookends this one verse, right? So he bookends the bookend, which is really kind of interesting. And so he bookends this verse by commanding, by noticing, excuse me, by noting that this command is not just a command from himself. It's also a command given by Silvanus and by Timothy, who are the three people from whom this letter comes from. In chapter 1, verse 1, he writes this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and he does this in 1 Thessalonians as well. And so this distinction, you know, just at the top of our heads, we see this, and, or I make this comment, and you might be thinking, well, that's kind of trivial. Why do I care? But really what it does is it actually tells us a very significant point within the life of the whole church generally, but also within the life of the Thessalonian church specifically. So if you'll remember from last week, again, this church was dealing with a lot of issues, like all these New Testament churches were. But this church was dealing with a lot of issues, especially around these forged letters that they had received from probably a Gnostic group or one of the Judaizer groups. 
Particularly, this, these, these, for, these forged letters were claiming apostolic authorship, and especially Pauline authorship. So this church knew Paul. Church Paul planted this church with Timothy and Silvanus. And so these letters are coming in. And so, what, again, t- these letters are telling them that Jesus had not only returned, but they had become anxious and some had started to walk in idleness. And so dealing with this then, in 2.15, Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, look, you need to stand firm. You need to hold to the traditions of this orthodox, this right faith that you have been taught. But he doesn't say that you have been taught by me. In 2.15, he says, this right faith that you have been taught by us. And so what Paul is doing is giving us really three interesting contextual points to frame this entire command, both in chapter 2 but also now in chapter 3 regarding idleness. So first, this command is addressed from the authority not only of Paul but also these two other ordained ministers that had a vested interest in their life, both spiritually and physically. And so what Paul actually does, just with this one verse, is he gives us a really interesting plurality principle of authority within this letter for the local church. And furthermore, this command is not also given in a vacuum just of man-centered authority, because he also appeals to the name of the Lord Jesus as they give this command. Again, he writes this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in, the, in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So that's the first thing. The second thing here is that this command is actually addressed also through the lenses of orthodoxy, so right belief, but orthopraxy, right practice. Now we'll flesh this out in just a second. But third, we're still in verse 6. Third, notice that Paul calls those who are walking in idleness in this verse, he calls them brothers. Again, we command you... In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. This tells us a very significant clarifying point to this letter. Is that these people are not outsiders. These people are fellow believers in the Lord Jesus. Which tells us something very important as we go through the rest of this command. And Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verses 12 and 13, Paul says this in chapter 1 Corinthians 5. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. And so this will be really influential as we make our way across the shelf and we look at the rest of this text, but also as we come to the second bookend here in a minute. So these people are believers in Christ. These are not outsiders. And so if we're honest, then, thinking back to the context of this command, telling the church or even encouraging one another to stay away or to keep away from someone sounds counterintuitive to what we proclaim in the gospel, right? Christ dines with sinners, right? We are to welcome the hungry and the naked and the lost. And so this sounds counterintuitive to that message, especially as it relates to one another, And so to help us understand this, let's, let's consider what this phrase, keep away, means. So in the Greek, keep away means or has an understanding of shunning or avoiding. So it's even stronger than the term keep away almost. We really probably ought to, some other translations in the room might even read shunning or avoid. But this tells us that an idle brother, somebody that is being lazy, is to be avoided, is to be shunned, because their behavior has now become undisciplined. And undisciplined laziness 
runs counter to the right belief and right practice of the faith that we have been given by Christ, the apostles, Scripture, and we passed on to one another. One commentator even notes that this command has a distinct military ring to it, telling us that it's, it's like as if someone who has become idle is a soldier who has dropped out of line from the other soldiers. So then why would Paul and Silvanus and Timothy command us to shun or to avoid a fellow Christian who has become lazy? There's two reasons in verse 6, then we'll move on. This is why we're spending so much time on this first uh, bookend. But there's two reasons why. First, according to verse 6, by being idle, someone who is lazy is intentionally and sinfully rejecting orthodoxy and orthopraxy. If being over-obsessed, like we saw last week, if being over-obsessed with the end times can bring so much anxiety that it cripples your faith and cripples the work that you have been called to do by God, how much more then does this sinful tendency to be idle also cripple our faith? Being lazy, being idle, is a rejection of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. But secondly, in this verse, not only are they rejecting orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but someone who is idle is also not standing firm in the right faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a lot, right? Those, those are our two points. That's a lot. But, again, bookends are meant to hold books on a shelf, right? Unless you're one of these crazy people that doesn't have enough books to fill up a shelf and then some like us because we have so many books, we don't even have enough shelves for them. So, if you have bookends, bookends are meant to hold books on the shelf, right? Lest they fall off. So what Paul does here then, moving on now, we're going to move into verses 7 through 9, as he says, here is the problem. But let me give you a better example. Remember this godly example that you have, both from me and from Silvanus and from Timothy, when we were among you. And he says this, he says, we, we were not idle when we were among you. We worked for our food. He goes on, verses 7 through 9, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to, how you should imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so what, what Paul is doing now is he's starting to work in contrast. He's saying, look, in contrast to those who have become idle, let me remind you of the diligent work that myself and Timothy and Silvanus did when we were among you. More specifically, let me remind you that we did not eat your bread unless we actually gave you something for it. And so what he does then is he obviously commands them to imitate his example. Paul does this a lot in his letters. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so here is the issue that he's getting at just in these three verses now based on that first bookend. It's this. The issue in this text is going to center on the need to earn your own living, but also not to be a financial burden to the church. And so this brings us to another issue. This brings us to the sinful motive behind these forged letters stating that Christ had returned. Because remember, some had become anxious. Their faith had been crippled. They were not working, doing the kingdom work that God had called them to. But others, in this case, had decided that since the end had come, they might as well just eat, drink, and be merry and let the church foot the bill. Their laziness had become a financial strain upon the church. And so here's some context just to help you understand what Paul is getting at. 
Paul notes in verse 9 that he and Silvanus and Timothy chose to forego their rightful claim of a payment from the Thessalonians in order to give them a godly example with which to follow. Again, he says this, It was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give in ourselves an example to imitate. So, when a traveling preacher or teacher would come into a village, they would come in and they would teach, right? And in this case, especially with the church, it made sense that they would house them, they would feed them while they taught and preached and, and, and taught. Or I already said taught. Anyway, but in this case, in the context of the time period, it was also not uncommon for an itinerant preacher or teacher or philosopher who was seeking fame and fortune to wander into a little town or a village or a city start to teach, start to peddle his theology, but then demand lodging and food and payment by intentionally putting a hard and harsh financial strain on that local community that he was there giving his teaching to. This was really part of the big issue with the Judaizer groups, but also with the Gnostics at the time. They did not want the goodness of the church. They wanted fame and fortune. Paul got into this in 1 Timothy when we were looking at 1 Timothy a few months ago. And so... This teaching from these forged letters had begun to influence some of the more immature people here in 2 Thessalonians to the point that they just quit going to work, right? And they quit going to work, and they expected the church to pay their bills, right? I need to keep my lights on, but I'm not going to get a job, so you're the church. You're supposed to love Jesus and love me, so give me money, right? This is the attitude. And so what Paul states flatly in verse 10 is this. He says that if someone is not willing to work, then don't give them any bread. He says... For even when we were with you, so I'm not with you. He's writing this from Corinth. Even if we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, this is not a command to forego giving aid and help to people who are truly in need. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, this is a command to directly target those who are unwilling to work. Because Paul is telling us that everyone who can work should work. And those who refuse to work should not be rewarded with charity. Nor should the church be guilted into rewarding their laziness. And that happens a lot, right? We can, we can make ourselves feel guilty for not helping somebody. But he's not condemning us. He's not telling us to not help those who truly are in need. He's telling us to be wise with how we treat those who can provide for themselves and are not doing it. And so otherwise, he's telling us here, he says that if you are being guilted into financially putting a burden on yourself and on the church to help those who are, will, who are unwilling to work but can, then really they're becoming accustomed to receiving these funds from the church where they could otherwise be productive. And so Paul advises, he says here, he says the natural consequence of laziness, the natural consequence of idleness and an unwillingness to work is not having any food. And that should motivate an idler to go to work. Now, again, obviously, this is a very general rule, right? There's always exceptions to rules depending on circumstances. We have to understand people's circumstances, right? Because there are some people who are unable to work. But being unable to work is not the same as being unwilling to work. And so the command here in verse 10, or really this whole passage, is that people who are completely capable of providing for themselves but refuse to do so are people that should be shunned from the church. Kick them out of the church, Paul tells us. 
they should be cast out because idleness is a sinful action. It is a deliberate sinful action. And it is a deliberate rejection of orthodox orthopraxy. And so what Paul is condemning here in verses 7 through 10 is not worklessness, but an unwillingness to work. And so then he moves into verse 11, and he gives us really one of the major frustrating outcomes of being idle. And so in verses 11 through 13, what he does is he actually delivers two commands to deal with idleness. He delivers one specifically to those who are idle, to those who are lazy. But then he gives another one directly to the whole church in verse 13. So in verses 11 and 12, he he addresses the lazy. And he just says this. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Or you can kind of feel the jab coming from Paul here a little bit, right? But before we talk about this, let's make a very clear clarification that I have so far neglected to mention. There is a major difference between rest and idleness, right? Between taking an hour or a day or a week to cease from doing work and toil. There's a difference because rest is built into creation. God commands us to rest. Rest is good, but being intentionally and deliberately and sinfully idle is not. Because, as Paul writes here, he says, idleness can lead to other outcomes that are sinful, such as being a busybody. Now, I imagine we all know a busybody or two, right? Whether that's in the church or not, in this case, it was in the church, right, here in 2 Thessalonians. I imagine if, you know, you're sitting next to your wife, you're probably nudging her a little bit. My wife is not a busybody, but, you know, now she gave me a look, right? But, you know, we're all just going, you're a busybody, right? But no, we all know busybodies. But busybodies are people who have not only sinfully stopped going to work, even though they're more than capable of doing so. Busybodies are those who become intrusively engaged in the activities of other people. They are meddlers. Busybodies are meddlers, right? They like to be involved, not just to be in the know, but they like to be involved so they can manipulate situations, right? Busybodies like drama, right? Busybodies like gossip, right? And all of these things lead to backhanded, you know, whispering that brings disunity to the body of Christ. This is what busybodies do. To put it in a way that's very familiar to us in our culture here at Christ Community, a busybody is someone who is opposite of, a, of one who seeks to be truly in community with the church. Being involved in one another's lives is absolutely vital to our sanctification. Being in the know for the sake of our care and our growth and for prayer and for accountability is vital to our sanctification. But busybodies aren't interested in sanctification. They're interested in gossip. They're interested in disunity. And this is how we know that this command comes from Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy with love. Because they know that busybodies aren't interested in our sanctification. And so instead, Paul tells them in verse 12, he says, You need to quit being a busybody, and you need to go work quietly, and you need to earn your living. So here again, we actually have that plurality principle coming into play in this command In verse 12, both from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and from Christ, he says in verse 12, Now, such persons, busybodies, those who are idle, those who are lazy, 
we command you and we encourage you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, do your work quietly and earn your own living. Basically, to put it bluntly, he says, you need to hush. Say it kind of crassly. Shut up and go to work. Right? That's what he's saying. Close your mouth. Stop meddling in other people's affairs in a sinful way and go to work. Working quietly is the opposite of being a busybody. You're not overly concerned with having your hands in everyone else's business if you're too busy putting food on the table. So earn your living and eat your own bread is what he's telling them. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we're not to be hospitable, right, or to invite people over to our homes for a meal or share what we have with one another. We absolutely should. But it does mean that we need to make sure that not only ourselves but others are, have not become so reliant upon handouts from the church that we are not financially contributing back to the church. So to the idle, to the lazy, Paul says, if you want to eat, then stop meddling and just go to work. But then the second exhortation is not separate from it contextually. It actually is very key. The second exhortation goes to the whole church. He writes to the whole church in verse 11. He says, but as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So in the context of all of this stuff saying these people are lazy and they need to go to work, he says, let me remind you, church, though, don't be wearied in doing good. So this, too, is a command from a place of love. Just like this command to the lazy, this command to the whole church is from a spirit of love. Because you can imagine, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, they fully and they completely understand that there is a frustration involved when you start dealing with people, right? We are sinful, broken people. We are redeemed by Christ. But people are still sinful, right? And so you get frustrated. And they understand this. And when you start seeing a fellow church member who is being sinfully idle... It's easy to get frustrated. And so you can see where Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus, they understand this. And so they're not condemning rest or they're not condemning taking a break from labor and toil. They're condemning idleness. And so what Paul does is he turns his attention back towards the whole church and he says, Look, as for you, brothers, reminding us that there is a distinction that, that he is addressing believers on both sides of this problem. You all are brothers in Christ, the lazy and the work, people that are working hard. You are all brothers in Christ. And so he commands us. He says, don't be weary in doing good. Or in, in a way that actually came up in Sunday school, we could read this. Don't grow weary in showing mercy. Right? Don't stop being merciful just because they're lazy. But again, this kind of seems like a contradiction. So let's try to understand it. The Greek word for grow weary or that phrase for grow weary also refers to becoming discouraged. Right? And it can be discouraging, right, when you see somebody that's just not moving forward. Or it can also refer to losing enthusiasm. In other New Testament passages, it's often translated as don't lose heart. Paul gives a similar command to the Galatians in Galatians 6. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of God. So combining these two commands then, go to work, but don't grow weary, we can understand that sometimes people fall into hard times. Right? We live in a broken world affected by the fall. So people sometimes fall into hard times. And as the church, we are to aid them 
However, at the same time, we understand that to constantly aid someone who is more than capable physically and mentally of feeding themselves and caring for themselves, we understand that long-term charity can do more harm than it can do good. Someone becomes idle, and so the church, as the church, we are not to grow weary in doing good for them, which sometimes includes aiding them in taking responsibility for themselves. And so that's the shelf. Now we're at the second bookend. And we notice here that while we're not to grow weary in providing aid, the idle are not to be left in their laziness. We are to call them out of their idleness. And Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they return once again to this earlier command. They say, stay away, shun, kick them out. For those who are idle, in verse 14, he says, he says if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So what Paul does in these two verses, he actually provides two really helpful contextual points as he restates this command in this other bookend. The first one found in verse 14 is that this command is to be regarded as Scripture. But then the second one found in verse 15 is that we are still to consider the one who is lazy, the one who is idle. If they are believers in Christ, still regard them as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. So let's consider both of these and then we'll come to the table. So Scripture first in verse 14 You'll notice Paul does not directly say this is Scripture, right? He doesn't just come out flatly, which we get frustrated at him sometimes, right? It's like you want him to just say, this is the Bible, believe in this, right? But he doesn't do that because that's not how the Spirit inspired him to write it. But the Spirit did inspire him to give us some characteristics to point us to the fact that this is, this is Scripture. And so look there again. He says this. He states that this letter carries apostolic authority within the life of the church. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter. So again, while he is writing, and Silvanus is probably pinning it, and Timothy is probably helping, and Timothy is there. Paul is stressing his authorship of this letter as opposed to the forgeries that this church had received from Gnostic or Judaizing groups. He even goes down, we don't have this in our text, but he goes down to verse 17 and he says, I, Paul, write this greeting. So here at the end, I write this greeting with my own hand as the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. He makes his own mark. So he's saying this letter has apostolic authority to it. But it also stresses for us the acceptance of this letter as authoritative and instructional by the church for the church's life and doctrine and practice. This church, this letter should be regarded as Scripture. There's another characteristic. There's two more. There's another one. The other one is he calls for the rejection of those who reject the commands written in this, in this letter. He goes on. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. If they don't obey this word, get rid of them. Right? That's what he says. Reject those who are idle. Reject those who reject the traditions of the right faith and right practice in Christ. And then finally, he says, though, this rejection has a purpose. And this is always a purpose of rejection. Rejection always has repentance in mind. He says in verse 14, 
If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him so that he may be ashamed. Like any sin, while cutting someone off from the greater body is to protect the church, like separating a diseased or sick animal from the rest of the herd or the rest of the flock, if you want to call it excommunication, if you want to call it church discipline, if you want to call it shunning and turning away, all of this is always and should always be done not only to protect the church, but to call the one being disciplined back to Christ, to call them to repentance. Calvin writes here, he says, Those who please themselves in their vices, so in their sin, they become more and more obstinate. And therefore, sin is nourished when we indulge it, he says. He says, therefore, but shame is the best remedy because shame awakens the mind of the sinner so that he begins to be displeased with himself and repents. Paul says here in verse 14, do it to their shame so that they might repent. Or as James would write at the end of his letter, he says this, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. But don't forget, he tells us in verse 15, do it to their shame, but don't forget that even in their shame, they are still a brother in Christ. They may be sinning, but they're still a brother in Christ. So don't regard him as an enemy, he says, but warn him as a brother. Don't regard him as if he is now an unbeliever but rather as a brother who has wandered from truth. And if anyone wanders from truth and you bring him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner who is a brother who is wandering from the truth will save his soul and cover a multitude of sins. Because let's be honest, especially as it relates to the first thing we looked at last week with freaking out over the end times, right? Or it relates to concerns about life and what's going on in life. We all, every single one of us, have moments where we're frustrated or we're anxious and where we're doubtful. This is, this is common. It's the human experience. We all have moments of stress and worry. We all have moments of anxiety. We just went through an election cycle. Some are very happy about the results and some are really anxious and frustrated, right? But we're always reminded when anything like this happens in life, we are always to be reminded and we are to remind one another that our hope is not in kingdoms and elections. Our hope is not in emperors. Or as we read in the Psalms, our hope is not in chariots or horses. But our hope and trust is in the name of Yahweh our God. So our exhortation from this week is the same as last week. Don't become so hyper-focused on the end that it cripples your effectiveness to the work that God has prepared before he called you to faith in Christ. Either through crippling worry, stress, or anxiety, or through the crippling sinful effects of idleness. But also, our exhortation from this text goes even further. We are to remember to hold fast to and to walk in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And when one of us wanders from the peace that we have in Christ and begins to be anxious or begins to be idle then we should let our lives be poured out as a drink offering on their behalf and bring them back into the church so that, they may, so that we all might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.